southern Washington state lies 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. Already, the contamination has earned it the title of the most toxic place in America, with an endless cleanup racket that funnels billions to defense contractors. But the damage already done by the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is nothing compared to the disaster that could happen any day. The all but inevitable explosion or leak at the facility could render almost the entire Pacific Northwest, from the Oregon coast to Boise, Idaho, uninhabitable to human beings for a quarter million years. So why is it that this place is totally unknown to most Americans? This story is explored in a new book by Joshua Frank titled Atomic Days, the untold story of the most toxic place in America, which you can buy now at Haymarket Books. It's an urgently needed case study of the inescapable consequences of nuclear weapons production and nuclear power. Nuclear waste. Atomic Days tells one untold story, centered on Hanford, but through it sheds light on the disastrous legacy of nuclear weapons production and their inextricable marriage to nuclear power. Wherever you fall in the nuclear power debate, it's not possible to have an honest discussion about it without a robust understanding of what Joshua Frank uncovers in his book. Mike Preisner and I sat down with Josh in our LA studio to give you a snapshot of the lessons Hanford holds for us all. Josh, in studio, in the Empire Files studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Empire Files podcast. We're talking about your new book, Atomic Days, the untold story of the most toxic place in America. Thank you so much for coming in, man. Thanks for having me up here. Um, you know, you grew up in Montana, right, initially? Mm -hmm. My dad was born and raised in Anaconda, which, of course, has its mm -hmm. own toxic legacy. And, you know, everyone there worked in the smelter and just surrounded by poison all the time. And I guess just growing up in like a working class community like that, that is kind of a government town in a way. How did you get interested in Hanford, which is kind of a similar story? Yeah. Um, I went to college in Oregon. And I think in the Northwest, a lot of people sort of know about Hanford, at least they're the shadow of it and what it was maybe, but they don't really know any details about it. It's a really complicated story and saga, um, but they know it's there. And I got involved in environmental stuff right after college and during college. And um, I was working for an environmental group and I was tasked with going out into these uh, tributaries to look for salmon for one summer. And I was um, staying in this little bunkhouse with these old guys and some of them had worked at Hanford. And they told me stories about how awful it was there and how toxic it was and that some of their friends had died. And I was like, well, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> What's going on up there? But then I kind of forgot about it. And I went to school, left the West Coast, came back. Um, but when I was in graduate school, I read a book about Hanford and was like, man, I got to get back there. I got to check that place out. So after I graduated, I went out to Richland, which is the town adjacent to Hanford, where basically everybody that works at Hanford lives. And it was really intoxicating. It was a really, you know, by then I knew more about Hanford and what it was. Um, but being in a city that was celebrating the atomic bomb like it was, I mean, the, the brewery, the beers of the brewery are named after like Plutonium Porter and, you know, Half-Life Hefeweizen. And you have the uh, high school is mascot is the bombers and they have a big uh, mushroom cloud exploding out of an R. You know, it's everywhere. And it's just really was weird, right? I mean, here we are like celebrating this thing that 
completely destroyed Japan. Is that like a Simpsons episode where like the baseball team is the is like the atomic? What is it? Oh yeah, they totally riff off of right. Richland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it has a lot. It has a very all American vibe. You know, it's like a rural town, but it's also very educated. It has the most PhDs per capita of any city in the country, um, which is because all the engineers and the scientists that work there. But it's also super conservative. Um, Fast forward, I was doing uh, some investigative work for Seattle Weekly, and I was like, I got to, maybe there's a story out at Hanford. So I got in touch with some people, and a few months went by, and I, got, I was contacted by a union lawyer who had all this trove of documents and a couple whistleblowers that wanted to go on record. And so I wrote two huge stories for Seattle Weekly at the time, um, one on a DOE scientist who was blowing the whistle, and another one that was a contractor out there. And uh, it sort of just ballooned from there. I mean, it was such a complex story that I really immersed myself in it, probably to the detriment of my mental health. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was awesome. I mean, it was a really big story. Ended up being one of the biggest whistleblower cases. Um, I was a small piece of that, of course. Uh, um, there was a lot of other people that worked on it, but um, ended up being a really big a big deal. And so I, you know, over the last 10 years since that stuff came out, I, a lot has happened at Hanford, but also a lot hasn't happened at Hanford. And I just feel like it's such an important story that nobody really knows about. I mean, here we have the most toxic place in North America. It has the most high level of radioactive waste in the country. It's a ticking time bomb. There's, there's 177 underground tanks that are full of this high level waste, um, one of the whistleblowers that I interviewed talked about a potential accident on one of these things and what that would do to the entire region of the Northwest, what it would do to the economy of the whole country. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it's it, it could happen, and it almost has happened there. Um, so I just felt like people need to know about this, and we're, we're taxpayers are spending billions and billions of dollars, and there's very little oversight, very little accountability. So I'm hoping that you know the book can kind of just do a little bit to open people's minds to it so that we can all get active in this because it's, I think it's a really important, um, important story. Well, and everyone knows about Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima, of course, no one, including myself. I mean, I didn't know about Hanford and I do this for a living. I mean, not yeah. just, not just studying the crimes of empire and the effects of war, but also the environmental effects. I mean, we're in the midst of filming this documentary and, the fact that this is largely unknown, and I think purposefully so, it's kind of obfuscated from Americans, uh, let alone the rest of the world. It's a, an extremely important story, and I want to go back to kind of this celebratory attitude from the town, mm -hmm. you know, because this is kind of this um, this problem when you go to government towns. Like, you know, I grew up in Pleasanton, California, and it's right next to Lawrence Livermore Lab, and going there I, for myself, never really realizing what Lawrence Livermore Lab was, what it did. And then once I did and studying how, you know, cancer clusters and the plutonium dumping and then like everyone in Livermore just had this complete detachment from what the lab did. And everyone was just super positive about it because everyone's compartmentalized to work in some fashion. And so what's really amazing about your book is you you actually go on a tour at reactor B. This is, I mean, yeah. it's just wild stuff. Like, it's. Did you wear like a lead jacket? Or, like, in retrospect, how insane it is that people are like, yeah, like this is, this yeah. is awesome. And what that was like. Yeah. Well, when we went, I went with my girlfriend at the time, now my, my wife, Chelsea. Um, we 
piled into a bus and we went out to this B reactor. It was the first that summer. I think it was 2010, maybe. It was the first summer that it was open to the public. And so they were doing these public tours. And so you go and you sit in this reactor and it's a complete celebration of the atomic age, right? The engineering and scientific uh, scientific ingenuity that went into creating this, how great those men were, how it ended the war. There was no discussion of, of course, the the fuel that was produced there was used in the Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. There was no discussion of that whatsoever. There was no discussion that just outside the door was the most highly radioactive area in perhaps the world, arguably. Um, it was completely bi- mind-boggling to me and frustrating, um, but also maybe not surprising because that's how American <laughs> minds work, and that's how we, you know, erase the evil history of our military enterprise is to ignore those ventures and to ignore, you know, the death and destruction that our military has caused all over the world. Um, so, yeah, we came back. What well, do they say on the tour? Were they just like, like, what was the tour? <laughs> like, <laughs> you go into these, you basically, you just, you look at, you're looking up at this wall that yeah. for a layman like myself, you know, you're looking up at this wall of like metal tubes and it's, it's very industrial and very clean and, uh, all the signs are like 1950s warning signs and it's kitschy, you know, and there's like a dummy with a hazmat suit on and it's it's weird. It's just weird. You almost want to like be on drugs to be in there because you it's so bizarre. It's like you're on a movie set, right? Um, and honestly, I don't I think I was I don't even remember exactly everything the guy was saying to us about about it all. <laughs> I think I was looking at Chelsea the whole time wondering like, man, she's never going to go out with me again. Because you're like, <laughs> she's like what are we, she's like, what am I taking you on this tour? Um, but I, th- we, I think I came away with uh, from that um, thinking there's a bigger story here. You know, this is completely what's really going on here is being completely ignored. Yeah. But to this day, the B reactor is still open to the public and they get like 10,000 tourists a year that travel through there. I want to go back before this giant plutonium factory was created, which was the first full-scale plutonium plant in the world as part of the Manhattan Project, and I want to dig into that. But first, let's talk about what the land was before the this area was cleared out. Yeah, so the land... Is, so Hanford is located in eastern Washington state, right along the Columbia River. Um, they, had to, they, they chose a location because it had access to water. You need cold water and ample water to have nuclear technology like that. Uh, they needed, they wanted it, since it was part of the Manhattan Project, they needed it to be secretive and private um, and sort of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, before that, it was really uh, Native Americans were the first to inhabit that area. Uh, one of the biggest salmon fishery areas, the Salilo Falls, was down, just down river from Hanford. Um, so at the time the Manhattan Project came along, there still were remnants of the Native American activity there. There was active, the Nez Pierce were there, the Yakima were still active and fishing. Um, and then there was a lot of poor farmers as well. So when the U.S. military and the, and the Manhattan Project came along and said, oh, this is easy, we can easily remove these people, right? We've been doing it all for like the last 200 years. And they were, they were moved off the land, um, and I write about that history a bit in the book. Um, and then they erected this atomic beast out of, you know, thin air, essentially. And it was 
the first, like you said, the first plutonium uh, reactor built in the country. And uh, it was up and running like in two years. I mean, it's completely mind boggling. And that's when you go back to the B reactor tour. That's what they talk about, right? Like how fast this thing was <laughs> erected and how great that is. I mean, it's amazing. And I was like, well, you guys should put that same ingenuity into cleaning this place up. Um, but later, the 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 Celilo Falls was the completely flooded out. Um, there was a dam built. Um, the whole area changed dramatically. Um, but to this day, there's a lot of um, some of the best activism actually comes from indigenous communities in the area that are fighting for their their rights and fighting for their land back. It was the the Springfield Isotopes is the baseball team in The Simpsons, oh, and then one yeah. of the towns that's that's like Hanford that's near a nuclear facility. They actually call their local baseball team the, the Isotopes or whatever. So they like are just literally taking the joke. I, thought, I like that better than the bombers. Yeah, yeah it's right. definitely <laughs> better than the bombers. At least it's yeah. a little more like scientific. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Manhattan Project a bit because I feel like you can't get into what Hanford is now. And the devastation that it's wrought without kind of describing what this plutonium was used for over the next several decades after this giant plant was created. Yeah. So um, the Manhattan Project, as most people know, was uh, developed in the early 1940s. It was a a huge covert operation to fast track a nuclear bomb. So there was three sites that were chosen for different aspects of this production, Uh, Oak Ridge in Tennessee and Los Alamos in New Mexico and Hanford. And each one of them had a different job, essentially. Some were enriching uranium, uh, which was happening at the uh, facility in um, Oak Ridge. And Los Alamos was more of like putting together the, the parts in some ways. And then there was Hanford that was producing the plutonium. Um, and it's crazy to think about they were actually like putting the stuff in rails and cars with this high-level radioactive fuel that could <laughs> cause massive chaos if, it, if there was an accident. I'm traveling it all over the country to produce this, this bomb. And, of course, those early nuclear tests as part of the Manhattan Project, the gadget bomb and all of those, that all was detonated in New Mexico, which is a completely other story and the fallout and how that affected communities there. Um, but Hanford, in particular, was the plutonium operation. And when... Uh, the Cold War picked up after World War II. Uh, Hanford became the focus of the nuclear arsenal of the United States. They produced, I think there's 21,000 nuclear warheads that we have that came out of the Hanford project, uh, the fuel for which was and came out of And nuclear Hanford. reactors too, right? Like all the... Yeah, and there was nine nuclear reactors that were producing plutonium at, at the, along the Columbia River in Hanford. And so all the nuclear reactors <clears throat> across the country have to source the uranium and plutonium from was it were they getting it from that main site so, or was it... so not to get like too technical about like the nuclear process in a reactor but essentially plutonium is a byproduct of nuclear fission okay so in a nuclear power plant commercial power plant there is that waste that is plutonium is a byproduct of that no matter what kind of plant it is um, in the case of the reactors at hanford the plutonium that was produced was used for nuclear bombs. Um, So they were producing massive, massive amount of this stuff because there's not a lot of plutonium that comes out of the fission process. So these uh, these things were up and running like 24-7. And there was so much waste, billions of gallons of chemical waste that was just dumped into the soil. They have all these tanks that the plutonium waste was uh, and other chemicals were dumped into. Um, 
and they had potential accidents. They're currently leaking. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole the whole there's a whole range of issues with all of that. But at the time when they were producing all this plutonium, it was really it w- there was no concern for the environmental impact. There was no concern for the human impact. It was solely based on propping up U.S. power. Um, and of course, with the Cold War, as we know, it was to counter the <laughs> the Soviet foe. Um, and before that, it was to counter the you know the the, the you know Stalin and, and the Nazis during World War II. Yeah, because it wasn't just it wasn't just plutonium. I mean, it's tons of chemicals that are spent to reprocess all the fuel rods. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just digging into what how Fukushima is still being processed today, and it's just mind bending to know that it's just a never ending process. And yeah. to learn from the book about how. I don't know how many decades they were doing this, but they were just taking the water to, I guess, cool the the rods and just mm-hmm. dumping it into the Columbia River for yeah. God knows how long. Yeah. I mean, they were finding radioactivity at that time at the mouth of the Columbia River in fish. <clears throat> and of course, none of this was known to the public because this was all not happening, right? It was all a secret operation. Um, we only learned ba- uh, in the late 80s the true extent to which uh, the local population had been exposed to intentional and accidental releases of iodine-131, which is a what gets into your thyroid and causes cancers. Um, <clears throat> there was all kinds of crazy stuff that happened uh, during those operation years. That, like intentional uh, experimentation, and, right? Like the yes, Green Mile to, run to see how this stuff, it, it had been released as a biological weapon, how it might spread across a community. To this day, the, the U.S. government has not owned up to that, um, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's exactly what they were doing with these intentional releases. One was known as the Green Run, and they knew that what they were releasing was highly toxic. Um, they may have only been looking at it to see how it was going to spread over a region, but they did not follow up with any of the public. They did not go out and do any studies on these farmers or animals. Um, it was only much later that we learned what was really going on um, from high eyewitness accounts and you know farmers talking about what was happening to their cattle and, and some into their their crops. When was the Green Run experiment? I want to say that was in 1949. Okay, so that was I'd, early. I'd have to I'd have to double check that. And they it was early just, on. So they released nuclear waste. Basically, they they on, released on iodine one three one into the uh, into the air. Right. Yeah. And then there was a number of other accidental releases of of different things over that course of the time. I mean, you got to imagine these things are running 24-7. It's very easy for an accident to happen or something to go awry, right? Um, And then there's there's the waste. Then you have all of this bubbling hot. At that time, it was, you know, highly, it's still highly radioactive. But at that time, it was all hot and bubbling, right? So they had to create the system to keep it cool. And in certain cases... There would be uh, rumbling. Um, there was obviously they knew about all these leaks that were happening that was making it to the groundwater supply that was going to go to the Columbia River. Um, and even more frightening, a potential explosion could have happened and almost did happen. In fact, at a sister facility in Russia, in the Soviet Union, there was an accident um, at a Mayak, at, at Mayak, which was the they were also producing plutonium there. <clears throat> They had a, a waste tank there that uh, there was some kind of sodium buildup and it ignited and it exploded into this basically a huge mushroom cloud mile and a half in the air, spread, I think, something like 80 kilometers. People, communities were completely devastated. To this day, it's uninhabitable. Um, and the U.S., the CIA found out about it a couple of years after the fact. But of course, 
that, and I think that was 1957. And the, the U.S. public was not made aware of that until the 80s because, of course, the U.S. government <laughs> shedding light on a catastrophe in the Soviet Union would probably cause a bit of concern for people that were living near Hanford and other nuclear installations in the U.S. So uh, is that something that could potentially happen at Hanford now? Yes. Oh, still. Definitely. You, you still have all this waste sitting in these tanks. And Dr. Alexander, who I interviewed, uh, went on record with me, uh, who's now retired, was a Department of Energy scientist. He actually was sent out as part of a delegation to look at the impacts of Mayak in, in Russia uh, and came back very concerned that a, a similar event could happen at Hanford. And essentially what his big concern is, is that with this, this waste in these tanks, and there's every one of these tanks has different types of waste and different configurations and all kinds of different stuff. Sometimes they don't even know what's in all of them. They just know it's bad, right? Um, they, some of them self-boil, so they have to keep them cool. They have to keep an eye on it. Uh, they produce hydrogen. So if hydrogen isn't released, it could build up. And if there's a spark, if there's kind of flame, if it gets too hot, it could explode. And that kind of explosion could have some, you know, a cascading effect with all of the, with the other tanks as well. Um, and it'd be really like, it's, it's really hard to think about what kind of devastation that could cause. You got the Columbia River right there. You have wind patterns that are going to carry this stuff far and wide all the way to the East Coast. I would argue that places like Boise and Spokane, you know, pretty big cities would be completely uninhabitable. People wouldn't want to raise their families in these in these areas. And then you, have, of course, have the, the Columbia River, which is the lifeblood for, you know, hundreds of farmers, commercial fisheries. So even downstream in Portland might not be, you know, a place that people are going to want to live. Yeah. You know, no, no, eat. that's... Yeah, that's like what we're talking about. I mean, so yeah. yeah, if you could really like, I mean, I think that's a pretty good explanation of like maybe some worst case scenario stuff. Yeah. So like we have, it's already the most polluted site in America. So there's the issue of this place is highly toxic and needs to be remediated and that's yeah. not happening. But the potential for disaster is so massive and it's like something that could happen any day Yeah, because it's just these poorly maintained volatile tanks that that spark that you're talking about could set off this chain of events that could lead to... Like, are, are there other types of, like, worst case scenarios that you're worried about? Or, like, what are we really talking about could happen at any moment? Well, that's the worst case scenario that's potential, right. right? The other potential thing, it's not that potential. It's happening, which is that right now, for instance, two tanks are leaking. They're leaking highly radioactive waste into the soil. And they don't have an answer for it. They don't really know what to do because they can't get this stuff out of the tanks. So they've covered them with tarps. Because there were, they don't want the rainwater to push that radioactivity further down into the groundwater supply. But that is, it's in the groundwater supply. Like already. a tarp that you put on like your roof when you yeah. have a leaky roof. Yeah. Okay. That you buy at Home Depot. <laughs> That's yeah. right. There's not like government tarps that are yeah. like <laughs> high trap level. But you know, of course, yeah. the Department of Energy, which oversees the project and their contractors, Bechtel in particular, says, well, don't, you know, you don't need to worry about this. You know, it's, this is. It, it, this is not going to be a problem for 50 years, for two, 20 years. Well, just to put it in perspective, plutonium is highly, highly radioactive for 250,000 years. Put that in perspective, humans have only been roaming outside of Africa for, what, like 60,000 years. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be around for a really, really long time. So they're concerned about, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a 20-year problem. That's still in, you know, geological time. That's nothing, right? And then there's also a lot of evidence that it it's probably a hell of a lot faster than that because this has been happening now for already 60 years. Describe what the, it's three times the size of Lake Tahoe in terms of like how vast yeah, this so pollution it's, it's, site it's is. It's half the, 
the Hanford site is half the size of Rhode Island. Wow. Um, it's massive. And there are huge, huge areas that were essentially just dumping grounds for, for chemical and biologic or and, and radioactive waste during its operation. And then you have the tanks, which are separated into two tank farms. Um, it's a kind of a really, it's a really bizarre sort of like layout. I have a map in the book so people can gotta get a sense of like what's, what's going on. Um, it's a military installation, but it's one that is, it's, it's almost like something out of, you know, some science fiction movie. Uh, it was for a long time, obviously a covert site, but even after it stopped producing plutonium was still, there was a paramilitary organization that policed it because they were worried about a terrorist attack or, right. or you know, stealing of information. Or, I think they're which called the, still... the Federal Protective Forces, mm-hmm. I think is their name. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like a branch of the military, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and I they think had a lot access of... to armored vehicles. They had black vans. They had helicopters. I think there was, they had over a thousand, you know, security <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. I think in uh, if you like look it up, it seems like it's more just like a, a like a police force that just yeah. sits around and does nothing. But I know from friends in the military that if you're like in special operations in the special forces world, like that's a career path to then go from that to the Department of Energy secret mm-hmm. nuclear protection forces. So it's not some like yeah. nothing like prison no, no. guard type thing. Like oh, you're kind of a cop, but also kind of like not. You know, yeah. it's like more high level than that. Yeah, I have a story in the book about this uh, whistleblower named Ed Bricker, who, long story short, was speaking out about potential, you know, disasters that could happen and accidents and things that were not going well. Uh, And since he was blowing the whistle at the time, they sent some of these people after him. He was being tracked by a black van. There was a, you know, there was an operation to take him down. And in fact, like literally, like literally kill him. Yeah. Yeah, which I write about in the book. He doesn't know exactly who was trying to kill him. Um, the story is very, like, horrific. Because it mean. could have been, like, the government Federal Protective Forces or it could have been, like, or it could Or it could have been his contractor or, a, you know, disgruntled employees, you know. Because at, at to go into, like, what it is now, right, it's a massive cleanup project. So mm-hmm. there's a ton of money to be made. And all the, it, it's, a, the, you know, the price tag right now is at $677 billion. It was only 400 and some billion you know, like four years ago. It's just, it'll probably be a trillion here in the next 10 years. And there's very little progress has been made. So there's a lot of incentive for these corporations and these contractors to not get the job done so they continue to profit. So it's not like a government remediation. It's outsourced to private corporations. Yeah, so the Department of Energy oversees the remediation of the, the, they oversee the contractors, but the contractors have the power. The contractors have most of the personnel. Um, uh, Going back to Dr. Alexander, one of his, he, he worked at Hanford for many years. It, you know, what he told me was like, the DOE is understaffed. We're under budget. We'd, we should be running, we, we should have more personnel and more oversight. And the contractors run the show out here because they get away with whatever they want. Yeah, you called a permanent disaster economy. And I think that's exactly what it is, especially when we look at a corporation that's super shady like Bechtel that has had a horrific track record around the world. And I want you to get into that. But but I this is it's so alarming when you actually look at like these tanks, like this tank system. And it kind of reminds me of just Red Hill and basically any other site that is leaking or any super fun site around the country that's allegedly being remediated or on the national priorities list. There's like something going on that's quite horrific. And <laughs> um, 
And in the case of Hanford, I mean, these tanks were not supposed to last for like more than 40 years, right? I no, mean, the, so what yeah. the fuck is the state <laughs> of them now? Yeah. I mean, yeah, even at the time when they were built, they knew like these are really this is a temporary fix. Like this isn't even a fix. This is these supposed to last like 10, 15 years. We're going on 80 years. So um, there are 177 tanks, like I mentioned, 149 of those tanks are single shelled tanks. So that's really just the tank and soil on the other side of those, right? There is a little barrier, but there's then there's 28 that they made that are twi- uh, double shelled tanks. Well, the idea was, oh, the double shell tanks are either going to hold up better. We're going to, you know, when the waste is getting too crazy for the single shell, we're going to take it and put it in the double shell, which is what they did. And there's been leaks in double shell. The double shell tanks are not going to last very long either. Um, and this goes into the problem of nuclear waste in general. It, it's, hot, you know, obviously highly radioactive, potentially explosive. Uh, and they're, what are you going to do with it all, you know? Um, and we can get into nuclear power and all of yeah, that too, yeah. but this is about weapons production. Uh, but of course, this was secondary again because propping up U.S. power, making nuclear weapons was, you know, what was the on- only concern. Really. Right, right. The environment came second. Of course, human health was very secondary to this goal, and it it just still is. I mean, as we're doing research for this documentary, we've gone to several Superfund sites, and it just it's all. Cold War experimentation, World War II weapons production, and then now it it just is happening again, Josh, with the PFAS dumping. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just it's just so callous and mind-boggling that this is happening, and it's just going to have ramifications for thousands of years, like generations. That it's just incomprehensible of what is being left. And then when you look at the remediation processes, I mean. So many sites that should be designated Superfund sites but are not because of this permanent disaster economy that's basically being outsourced to these shady corporations. I was really surprised to learn that Bechtel – I mean, I didn't really know much about Bechtel. Um, Why is it that the cost continues to rise so rapidly just – I mean, it's like every year they just – they're just like, oh, here's another $150 just send us the check the and we'll... Uh, <laughs> is that 20% yeah, yeah. increase from last year? Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. what the fuck... Yeah, I guess move, walk us through this whole um, cleanup process because this is the most expensive cleanup of a toxic site in world history. Mm-hmm. And Bechtel is just making out they're like reaping, bandits. They're reaping the benefits of that. Yeah, I, I want to preface my criticisms of Bechtel by first saying, I think anybody would probably agree... No matter how much money it takes to clean up a place like this, it should be spent. Right, right. Of course. The, the, of course. <laughs> but, the, but unfortunately, there is no accountability. Very right. little accountability. And anytime like the, the government accountability office comes out there and, and does an audit or looks at how this money is being spent, they, yeah, there's a little slap on the wrist for Bechtel. You know, they say, oh, you know, you're just, this is egregious. Um, they're, they've been busted for ripping off, uh, ex- exploiting some of their other subcontractors and also taxpayers on numerous occasions. But they pay their fine and they move on because paying a $150 million fine for them, which is what they've done in the Cost past of doing five business, years, yeah. it's, it's no big deal. It's, it's so profitable for them. Um, and because there isn't any oversight, they continually can just go back and say, hey, no, this is going to cost a lot more than we anticipated. And it was which is the really the big problem with the biggest uh, facility that they're building out there, which is the waste. It's called the waste treatment plant, uh, or the VIT plant. 
So the idea and what they're planning on doing, and I hope it can be successful, is to take this high-level radioactive waste uh, and turn it into glass rods, um, vitrify it. So that's why it's called the vit plant. And then take that off-site and store it safely so that it's no longer in these tanks, no longer leaking, no longer about to explode. Um, well, that turns out that turning those all that high-level radioactive waste in the glass rods is not an easy pro project. It's not an easy process. It's really, really problematic in so for so many ways, um, from an engineering, um, you know, problems to the fact that this waste isn't uniform, that there's all kinds of other chemicals in it. So they they're running into all kinds of problems. They just uh, a couple months ago were starting up the test run to vitrify, which they were going to vitrify low-level waste. And they were really excited about it. They almost had like a ribbon, ribbon cutting for this place. And they had it up and running for one week and it overheated. Holy shit. And I don't even know how many, you know, billions of dollars went into just that test run. So now they're going back to the drawing board. So it's those types of things that continue to demand this increase in their budget. Um, and, you know, the Democrats and Republicans are both on board with this. Uh, there was a threat that Trump was going to cut the, cut the budget, but ended up not cutting it. Senator Murray uh, out of Washington just wrote a letter to Biden saying, hey, we need this much more money for <laughs> this cleanup. And yeah, on the, on, you know, on the face of it, great. We need the money for yeah. cleanup. But I think once people understand what's really going on out there or what they don't know is going on out there, I think they would be a lot more concerned about where this money is actually going and what it's being spent on. And what else is Bechtel involved in? They're involved in some really shady shit. Well, they famously um, uh, got the contract to rebuild Iraq after the Iraq invasion oh, yeah. in 2003. And then they had to basically retreat from the country by like 2006 because, you know, they brought their own little private army and stuff. But like over 100 Bechtel employees got killed or wounded. In over Iraq. 100. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they were they were I think one of their big projects was building a children's hospital. <laughs> and and, they, you know, it was supposed to be done in like two years yeah. and they after like three years or something it wasn't done mm -hmm. and so they had to get someone else to come in and build it but they profited mm -hmm. you know oh, it, yeah. so it didn't matter they they were building uh you know going back even to uh the cia overthrow in in iran i mean in syria they've been they trail the u.s empire all over the globe yeah uh, so they they really manage these huge infrastructure projects and they're a private company so they're not accountable to any shareholders and they have a symbiotic relationship with the Department of Defense and Department of Energy, and they have a really bad track record. I mean, they were they built um, the underground road uh, system in Boston. The I forget the name of the the project. Oh yeah, that took like a way long time. Yeah, and there was a huge accident. People were driving, and these huge concrete slabs came down and like crushed car, and Whoa. people got injured. Somebody died. So. That was one of their, you know, projects at home. <laughs> so we got to see, you know, how well this they are actually at doing their job. Um, but ultimately, they are just one of these other companies that reap the spoils of U.S. empire. Mm -hmm. And really, I think it's important to think about the Hanford Project as a spoil of U.S. empire. It's on the home front. It's happening in our own backyard. Um, but it's there. And I think people need to know about it. It's the perpetual profiting off of even just disaster sites, you know, yeah. as a consequence of, of what we do. Um, and that's really disturbing. And so Bechtel's profiting, but all the workers that are contracted are facing, you know, very dangerous, hazardous situations dealing with this waste on a daily basis. And you write about that in the book. And that's something that I think people need to take into consideration is mm -hmm. 
When was the facility decommissioned as like an active? In the late 80s. In the late 80s. So that that's how dangerous this stuff still is, you know, 40 years later, that you can be working to remediate it and still be, you know, taking in these really high level like radioactive yeah and it's not just radioactivity it's a lot of chemical vapors that Mm -hmm. these workers are exposed to and for years they weren't even provided the right kind of respirators and other things to be you know protecting themselves and i write about a lot of these victims of just guys that were going in and doing their job on a day-to-day basis um, that come out years later really really sick um horrible you know diseases, emphysema type stuff, cancers, uh, nosebleeds in the middle of the night, and other degenerative brain diseases that they can get from being exposed to all these uh, chemical vapors. It's really, really bad. Um, And unfortunately, the unions aren't doing enough to really help out either. Um, Fortunately, there was some legislation that was passed in Washington Washington State to compensate these workers after the fact um, if they are working at one of these sites and they get ill and they can prove it later. Um, So there is some compensation and some work being done on that, which is really great. That's great because that's a really slow process as we've seen. But it's also really hard to prove. Right. It's a really hard thing to prove that your work caused you to get sick 10 years later. Yeah. And which a lot of people don't really understand about, you know, uh, chemical vapors or radioactivity, you know, or iodine-131, which I mentioned earlier, that this stuff can bioaccumulate. So if you don't, you're not, you know, you have a low dose, you're not going to get sick immediately. Uh, maybe you will a little bit, but then over the course of time, it builds up. And if, especially if you continue to, it's like smoking, right? You're not going to get lung cancer after smoking a pack of cigarettes, but 20 years of smoking cigarettes, yeah, you probably are going to get cancer or, or some problems. Um, it's the same with chemical vapors or radioactivity. So I think it's important for people to think about that because we even look at like Fukushima and we don't, we don't need to go, go into how the Japanese government's really concealing the true impact of that. But even so, a lot of those impacts are going to happen over a course of period of time, not, you know, in the immediate aftermath of that. So actually, like a study going on right now would be better than something that happened two weeks after the fact. Of course. And that's why it's so dangerous, the fact that they're still dumping all this radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to feel the effects of that until, you know, probably... Today is a good time to do studies. But yeah, I mean, generations from now, it's just going to keep compounding. Josh, and you said something really interesting that I want to I go go back to this relationship that you can't take apart from one another, which is nuclear weapons production and nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that I didn't realize at first, and I think Fukushima was a big wake up call, at least to me, was like, why are these reactors built right next to the potential for cataclysmic like disasters like the ocean? main waterways and and that's necessary that is necessary to do and that just like further will exacerbate any sort of uh potential you know earthquakes or natural disasters or potential attacks on these facilities and you cannot build them without doing that correct but also like you said in the book i mean i want you to talk more about and just elaborate more on how if you are building these reactors that is going to be subsidized by the government and going to be used essentially for just the continuation of the nuclear arms race. Right. Well, I think it's important to for people to know and realize that nuclear power came out of the quest to build nuclear bombs. It's been linked at the beginning <laughs> 
through the Manhattan Project, essentially, uh, in the U.S. at least, um, with nuclear weapons. Nuclear power and nuclear weapons are symbiotic. In France today, France being the biggest nuclear power producer in Europe and also the one of the largest nuclear arsenals in the world, Macron just last year was boasting about this and saying, hey, you, everybody, you need to support nuclear power because it, it it's also supports our defense of our country. You know, last summer, however, just to go back to the water issue, during the heat wave, the big heat wave in Europe, uh, France's half of their nuclear reactors went offline because the rivers they were trying to draw water from were too warm. Right. Oh, my to God. Cool it. So oh my God. here, when everybody argues, you know, nuclear power is so reliable, when France needed it most, they had to shut them down because the water was too warm. And of course, with climate change, we're going to see more of this happening. Um, and, and is it tied because like if you have a nuclear power facility, you then use byproducts of that to put in nuclear weapons? Like, is it that direct of like, oh, we have this nuclear power plant, therefore we're going to get yeah. plutonium and stuff to put in our bombs? So they can. So in a, in a commercial reactor, a commercial nuclear power reactor, you will have a plutonium as a byproduct of that. Now, you can then reprocess that to be used into a bomb for a bomb which uh, Jimmy Carter outlawed in the late 70s because he argued this stuff, if we don't do, if we if we continue to reprocess nuclear fuel, w- you know, we're perpetuating... So it's going to have a million arms, nuclear right? bombs one day, you know, yeah. we'll just keep making more nukes to get exactly. rid of this plutonium. Not all countries have outlawed the reprocessing. Right. Russia continues to reprocess. Um, but it's uh, it's a potential down the road, right? For And I think people need to understand that if we were to roll out all nuclear power as this saving grace for climate change, right, because we have this disbelief that since nuclear power doesn't produce carbon <laughs> emissions, that somehow it's the savior. We can get into how that's completely BS. But they, st- I think aside from that, I think people need to realize that all this waste is still going to be produced. This still has the potential to be reprocessed and used in nuclear bombs. And there's no way around that. You can't you can't have it's like burning fossil fuels and not having pollution. You can't and it's with all all nuclear power produces nuclear waste. And some of that nuclear waste can be used in bombs. So I mean I think that people that oppose nuclear war should also oppose nuclear power for that fact alone. And nuclear waste, you know, never goes away, right? <laughs> I mean, how do you get rid of it? Where are they putting it? They're putting it like in the mountains, well, right? Just south of us in San Onofre. So you can't which, get rid of nuclear waste once you create it. You can't get rid of it. Right. No. There's you no way. It just it stays That's there. That's why they want to. Right. Be, you, yeah. you create waste with nuclear power and then the waste just stays wherever you put it for as long as you can contain it in that place. Yeah. Mm. Now, you know, nuclear power proponents will say, oh, well, we can figure out a way to bury it safely in out of sight, out of mind. It'll be fine. Well, I would argue, first of all, burying it, you know, two miles underneath the crust of the earth costs, you know, a lot of carbon to build that, you know, cave or hole. Um, you also have the potential for it to be stolen, then reprocessed to make into a bomb. You have the problem of the fact that it has to be safe for, you know, 200,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> right. We have some geological events that could happen. And also if we're around <laughs> for 200,000 years, you know, how much nuclear waste are you going to build up over that period of time anyway? It's like, okay, maybe it's like a short-term fix. You will get it. But like, once you start thinking about it as a long-term like transition to a new form of power that you're just all of a sudden going to have more plants and operating for more time, it's like the trying to think about the amount of waste that would actually produce seems like yeah and and then of course the cost and how much that costs to you know build these plants uh, the mining that goes into uh, 
pulling out the uranium. So uranium comes from rock, basically, it's in an ore. And to extract that uranium from the ore is very, very carbon intensive. It's, 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 and of course, it's one of the most dangerous types of mining operations in the world, as the Diné and the Navajo, uh, Navajo Nation would tell us. And, uh, you know, there's a horrible history with uranium mining in the U.S. Um, so all of these things, I think, should at least <laughs> raise a little bit of caution for people that are thinking nuclear power is an answer for climate change. You have to address these other facts. And, and none of them address the nuclear waste fact. It, it, it is something that does not go away and they cannot deal with it. Well, if one nuclear facility like in Hanford could, with just a random spark one day, make it uninhabitable to live in like the entire Pacific Northwest, I guess uh, you don't have to worry about carbon emissions so much <laughs> if you transition nuclear power. You're just like, uh, that won't be the issue. Yeah, I'm ready for a nuclear power booster to raise that argument. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've heard a lot of people resurrect the idea of nuclear energy as the solution to climate change and fossil fuel addiction. And, you know, someone like George Monbiot at The mm -hmm. Guardian, um, one of the more cartoonish columns that we've seen, I think, you know, and this is a guy who's basically notorious for writing about climate change and writing about the IPCC reports and is very, like, environmentally conscious. Yet he wrote a column actually titled, Why Fukushima Made Me Stop Worrying and love nuclear power, um, where he says the crisis at Fukushima converted him to the cause of nuclear power. Very fascinating kind of um, mental gymnastics there. I mean, for me, it actually did <laughs> the opposite. But um, I guess talk about the capabilities of the nuclear power industry to kind of push this narrative forward, because I know it's heavily subsidized by the U.S. government. I know that there's a, a very intensive lobbying force behind it, but the fact that people like him are on board with this, I think, is really interesting because it's tamping down on the, the, the alternative narrative that we don't need nuclear power to solve climate change. And, uh, and clearly, this is like controversial. It's very like controversial. The left also. No, and, it is. And the environmental movement. Like yeah. there is a split over nuclear power, which was definitely not always the case. No. I mean, yeah. The left was always like I mean, the anti-nuclear movement in like the 80s and stuff was like. Huge I would I would argue that the anti-nuke movement in the U.S. post-Vietnam War was one of the most effective activist mm, movements mm -hmm. in this country. I mean, in California, after Diablo was built, there was no more nuclear facilities built. The Clamshell Alliance was the organization, one of the grassroots organizations that fought that plant. But after it opened, um, there was a, new, a number of n other f nuclear facilities that were on the on the map to get built that didn't get built. And that happened all over the country. Um, it was, they were very, very effective. And they were very effective at, also they, I wouldn't say they got lucky, but also Chernobyl happened, right? And going, going back to Monbiot, <laughs> going back to Monbiot, he actually argues, I think in that same piece, that, oh, Chernobyl's well, look, overblown. Chernobyl didn't kill that many people, so it's not that big of a deal. Well, actually- <laughs> You still can't go there. <laughs> you can't go there. And actually it did kill a lot of people. Right. And it killed upwards of a million people, according to a huge report that was, that was produced years later that he completely ignores. Um, and again, it goes to the fact that the aftermath of these types of events take years to transpire. Right. So, you know, he, he, it's very dangerous what he's what he's pushing. Um, but and to the go Fukushima back to, crisis is still have it's ongoing. It's totally it's like, ongoing. We don't know the effects of that. So how the fuck did you look at that? And you're like, you know what? This is <laughs> this yeah, is what the thing convinced with, uh, me. Nuclear disasters is they never go away. And even just nuclear, and it's just not even disasters, but it's just something that is there for yeah. eternity. I mean, when I'm talking to people on the left that come at me when we're talking about nuclear power, I, I I'll just 
I lay out a few arguments. One, you have to accept that you have uranium mining. Uranium mining is very, very toxic. It's carbon intensive. It happens in the U.S. primarily on, on indigenous lands. You have the fact that it's very expensive. Nuclear technology is very expensive to roll out. Um, if we're thinking about it as being a, a, you know, an answer to climate change, w 10 years to build the reactors, we don't have that kind of time. Uh, you have the waste issue. You have the potential for accidents. And now we have nuclear plants in war zones, right? What's happening in Ukraine and potentially in Taiwan. Taiwan has nuclear plants. What if there's a confrontation between China and Russia in Taiwan? And now you have shelling going on near a nuclear plant there. Uh, th these are all these are all things I think people need to think about. And of course, the argument changes tomorrow if there actually is a disaster in Ukraine and one of these plants gets hit, um, and you have some fallout. And you know, um, of course, there'll be a cover up and all of the things that we know will, will happen. In fact, I think just yesterday again, uh, one of the tank waste facilities. And I was reading this in an, an AP report. And they're like, oh, thankfully it wasn't a reactor. It was just a, a, a waste tank that was that was hit. And I was like, that is still really, really fucking bad. <laughs> like, yeah. it potentially could have been a disaster. And maybe it is, you know. They don't have monitors in those war zones. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to, to be really, really skeptical. I mean, I'm not a proponent of, of coal or natural gas. I think we need to get rid of it. But coal and natural gas plants in a nuke, in a in a war zone don't pose those same risks that's just how, don't how did this change like over the last two decades because or i guess several decades i guess you said in the 80s and 90s the anti nuclear movement was really strong so like what what is it because you would think fukushima would almost just reinforce that um, but it seems like it's changing is it just really the desperation over climate change and like incorporating and folding in a lot more like environmentally conscious people or has the industry become more powerful and more savvy like what what are the factors at play here yeah, and who are they who's the nuclear lobby you know <laughs> al gore who's the dude no, yeah um, right i think that it has to do with climate change i think that the esoteric nature of climate change and how we combat it is problematic for a lot of people to understand what it's going to take. And I think it also has to, we always have to have a reckoning with the, our own consumption. But if we had this easy answer, right, nuclear power that could just come along and we can live our lives just the way we have been and we don't have to worry about carbon emissions, it sounds like, you know, uh, the answer. And I think a lot of people uncritically believe that. I think part of the appeal is also like, People have this. It seems so high technology and futuristic because yeah. nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, it, it that shit happens in space. That's mm -hmm. not something that's naturally occurring on Earth. Like maybe like the center of the Earth, but that's even like debated if if nuclear fission is happening in the center of the Earth. But like that's a thing that fucking is stars. That's when you think yeah. of what is really nuclear naturally occurring nuclear fission. That's fucking stars, man. Yeah. I mean that's the sun. And so the the concept of like we have become gods in a way and can harness the power and technology of the sun as man, you know, we can create our own miniature suns. Mm -hmm. It just seems, I, I think to some people it could seem like this is like high technology, super advanced human society. I think others may see it as we shouldn't like play God. This is some, some things maybe don't, shouldn't be harnessed. If by we humanity. can't harness it safely and properly, yeah. you know, I mean, it's an amazing right. magical technology, but if you cannot, if we're too dumb 
to figure out how to actually deal with the effects of this. Well, yeah, technology. what it has like two uses, right? One is to just kill huge numbers of people really fast. That's one of the uses <laughs> of it. And the other is to boil water. Boil water <laughs> in a facility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is, I mean, it. They uh, they attribute this quote to Albert Einstein, but I think it was actually uh, Carl Grossman, anti-nuclear activist, who said nuclear power is a hell of a way to boil water. Because <laughs> that's all that's what's happening in nuclear reactors. That's right? all that's it's happening. It's just creating in... heat yes. to boil water and the, the, it's like steam power in a way almost. Yes. Yep. <laughs> okay. So were you an opponent of nuclear power before you started investigating Hanford or did this further solidify kind of it your... It definitely further, further solidified it. I... I definitely was not a supporter of nuclear power, but I didn't really have a true understanding of its horrific effects. You know, I knew about Chernobyl, I knew about Fukushima, um, and you know, we've been kind of fortunate in the U.S. in a way because there hasn't been a big push for nuclear power. You know, Obama talked about resurrecting it a little bit, uh, but there hasn't been any real groundbreaking events that have happened. Um, but the, now there's a new call for it, and. Uh, Biden's infrastructure bill is pouring money into keeping these nuclear plants alive. Uh, Diablo Canyon nuclear plant in Northern California, or kind of central Northern California, just got a huge, huge grant from the federal government to keep it up and running. Uh, that was supposed to be shut down in a couple of years. So there's st it's still a, a real hot topic and a real big issue. You know, and it's costing billions of dollars to keep these plants operating. Safely. So like the nuclear industry, it's like it's all Department of Energy. So, like, there's no, like, private nuclear power plants. Is it all government-run or who's they're even... They're, they're government over... Yeah. So, the government oversees a operation, right? Right. Because of its, it's <laughs> potential yeah. to be a disaster. Um, but there are private corporations. PG&E, you know, for instance, owns Diablo. Right. Oh, great. And well, they, they have a great track record. Yeah, they do a great, yeah, do a great job maintaining power yeah. lines. So that's... Yeah, and, they're yeah. Like and, monolithic and, and just to talk about Diablo, for, for instance... That plant is on a fault line that they discovered, and it's right on the the ocean, of course, um, and it's old. It's an old plant. They had a great agreement that they came to a couple of years ago. The unions agreed on it. PG&E agreed on it. Environmentalists agreed on it. The governor agreed on it. And because of pressure and because he's an idiot, Newsom has said, oh, no, we're going to we're going to scrap that. We're going to keep it up and running. Because we need to transition. Can you imagine what kind of like the billions of dollars to keep this thing up and running if we were to invest in more efficiency and more, you know, solar on rooftops and other other projects? Instead, we're keeping this dinosaur alive that could potentially be a disaster. Yeah. So there's several like Fukushima um, sites that have the potential to become like disaster sites because of fault lines. Look at the Pacific Northwest, the chance of earthquakes even is that's a nuclear reactor right on the way to San Diego, right? I think so. San Onofre. Yeah, San yeah. Onofre. It's not up and running, but they okay. have spent fuel that's sitting in there that they right. have to keep cool. You have an earthquake. Yeah. You have some kind of event. I mean, I surf there a lot and I surf under, I, I question myself when I'm doing it, but I look up <laughs> and I see this, I'm like, what is going on? You know, what if there's a disaster right now? It's so right. dystopian. Yeah. It's, it's so very dystopian. dystopian. You'd be, uh, it'd be very like escape from LA. Like you would surf a big nuclear <laughs> wave. It'd be my last It'd be the surf. last yeah, yeah, surf. you just instantly <laughs> get cancer. It'd be, it'd be like in Chernobil where yeah. you get And I do know quite a few surfers that have developed cancer that yeah. surf down there a lot. Oh my God. So, I mean, I think, you know, radiation, it's like, you know, doing this documentary we're working on, like we deal a lot with PFAS chemicals mm -hmm. and that cancer cause, and it's like yeah. PFAS like radiation, it's something that it's, 
it because it's something you cannot see or smell or taste, it it just it, it's harder to convey the dangers to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so radiation, you know, is similar. People know radiation is bad, but it's hard to like conceptualize like why. I think like the the best way I've had it explained to me is radiation being being hit with radiation is like being shot with a shotgun, except the pellets in the shotgun are microscopic like atomic level shotgun bullets so it's like you're being shot with a shotgun but it's tearing through you on an atomic level mm-hmm. and ripping apart your just molecules and various and that's why you get cancer because things just start to fall apart inside you and right. so that's why at chernobyl people that were very close to the radiation and got a big blast of it you know they didn't survive 24 hours because their insides just all kind of slowly fell apart because they were just blasted at a molecular mm-hmm. level. And small doses over time, it still does that, but it's just like small, there's like less pellets in the shotgun shell that's being shot into you, but it's still tearing through your body. Yeah, It's and that's tearing why, through your body. You know, long, long haul pilots, uh, people, guys and, and women and others that fly long distances are exposed to high levels of radiation and the cancer rates in pilots and also, you know, other people that work on planes is is higher than the, the average person. And that's for that very reason. And that's why governments will cite just like um, way smaller casualty counts for things like even like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and a lot of these disasters, Chernobyl and whatnot. And then it's like you very rarely will hear the true cost. Like you said, I mean, close to a million people just with Chernobyl alone. That's pretty shocking. You know, but it's hard to track because it happens in such a slow Well, and I think process. it's important to understand in, in the case of those big catastrophic events that the the UN will come in and oversee a study like this. But the UN has an incentive of keeping nuclear power alive. I mean, the IAEA was set up to promote nuclear power. So they're not going to police it. You know, it's like Dracula guarding the blood bank. It's Yeah. And like. So like you're saying, like, so Hanford is a great example because like there doesn't even need to be a disaster or a big explosion or something. Just the leaking of the tanks has such catastrophic potential. If one of the tanks, single shell tanks cracks, you know, that could devastate, you know, human and animal life for a long time in a very wide area. Then you have the just on normal day to day functioning. There could be just some random disaster that causes an explosion. And then you have a huge disaster just from nothing happening, just from day to day operations happening. Yeah. But then, as you were saying, you have there could be an earthquake, there could be a fire, there could be a, a terrorist attack, there could be a disgruntled employee. You know, we we live in a country with a lot of like yeah. mass shooter type people. Maybe one of those people works at the facility who wants to fucking blow it up. I mean, the. And it's always dangerous at all times anyway. Mm-hmm. But then when you compound all these other potential things that could cause big disasters, it just is Absolutely. pretty scary. Yeah, it is. It's frightening. So we don't need nuclear power to solve climate change is what you're saying. I think that we do not need to have any energy source that potentially could be catastrophic to as an answer to climate change. And nuclear power is an example of that. I don't remember the guy was it mark jacobson the guy who did mm-hmm. the study about um i mean really monumental potential for just renewables and i know that renewables of course are not perfect of course it, yeah yeah carbon you know to to create these farms and stuff like that but just the lack of looking into this and really using these resources is just really shocking you know and why is that i mean certainly there's money to be made is it because like once you set these farms up, that's just like not a constant cash cow? Like what the fuck is happening here? It's a good question. Um, 
I think it comes down to money. It comes down to where the money can be made. And a nuclear plant is a constant producer of incomes. Yeah. And which is why some on the left support that's, you know, producing nuclear energy. It's a jobs creator. Yeah, it's a jobs creator. (laughs) Yeah. It would be one thing if the argument was like, Nuclear power after we have like a socialist revolution, you know, and it's all well. Like, that's that's essentially like Lee Phillips and others okay. uh, argue for that. Okay, um, but even but that, I would argue, well, there's a lot of things that can create a lot of jobs that are not good. Right. <laughs> right? Like, but like now, I mean, it seems insane to advocate for it now with like this government. Like, yeah, you cannot system. trust these mother. It's like they can't handle anything, let alone yeah. like all the, this whole conversation changes tomorrow if if a plant gets hit in Ukraine. Yeah. Right. Uh, until then, we're just alarmists, right? We're just we're just saying this is what, and that's going back to the you know the anti nuke activism. Chernobyl was their, you know what they were saying potentially happen, and it happened. Right? And isn't Chernobyl? Cra- I mean, cracking now, like even the the shell that they put over Chernobyl is like about mm-hmm. to break. It's like you can't ever keep this shit in. No. Yeah, you know, actually, a good. I met someone when I we were in D.C. filming for the documentary at, at a protest against the EPA for not regulating the the DOD enough. And uh, one of the guys was the guy who led the cleanup of like Bikini Atoll, like one of the yeah. islands that they just destroyed with nuclear weapons. It's the one they just put a big concrete shell over. And I was talking to him and he said, there is no such thing as a nuclear cleanup. You can never clean it up. Like yeah. you can do things to like protect the environment and people around it, but there is no such thing as a nuclear cleanup. It's true. I think I, I guess I would I would change it only a little and say that there's no way to remediate nuclear waste, but there is nuclear cleanup. It just never stops and continues to be profitable. Everyone check it out. <laughs> I mean, it's a really crazy story, and I think everyone needs to know about it because it's just a it's a, a window into what the state of not just this country, but the world is. And really, you know, the vast majority of Superfund sites in America are either active military installations or previously housed military needs. And really everywhere there is a military base or there's a Superfund site, there is just constant pollution affecting local communities, affecting the environment. And Hanford is just the most dramatic example of this. And why is it that we don't know about this place? Why is it that environmental organizations are not putting this front and center? Why is this not the number one issue with the environmental movement? Because like we've been saying, I mean, it has the potential for such disaster. Yeah, like you actually, you mentioned in your your book, I think that like Sierra Club, like the big green environmental groups, like don't talk about Hanford and the cleanup there. Yeah, and some of those groups um, support nuclear power. Um, and, and also to give some of them a break, it's a very complicated story. Um, it's largely operating in secret. This cleanup is in secret. I mean, it's in a very rural area. So nationally, it's not a story. It would be definitely be a story if there was an explosion there. Um, but it wasn't a story when last August we found out another tank was leaking. That didn't make national news. Um, it's it's kind of amazing, right? I mean, think about the BP oil spill in the Gulf. And you had 24-hour, 24-7 coverage of this gushing oil now th- we probably need a camera underneath looking at the the, the waste that's coming that's out the thing, but you it's can not see a sexy... oil you can see oil you can yeah. see it on birds but if something even deadlier is leaking at just the same scale it's you can't you know yeah it's harder for people to wrap their minds around well that's why this book is so important josh because i think 
the nuclear issue is something that people, especially people who are left wing and progressives need to understand more. And it is such a big, complicated topic. It's hard to wrap your mind around. But learning about Hanford is so important because so many other places have the potential to become Hanfords. Any new facility we built could become a Hanford. And so I think if people take the time to check out your book, learn about this one site and this one issue, it can help them understand the larger issue so much better. Right, because it's a case study. I mean, it's a case study of what could happen. And you need to understand that and take responsibility for that potential if you are going to be a proponent of this type of energy. And, you know, just look into it. Look into it because it's an incredibly devastating case study. And I encourage everyone to get the book, support Josh's work, Atomic Days, the untold story of the most toxic place in America, potentially the world, with author Josh Frank. Thank you so much for coming in the Empire Files studio. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, tell us, uh, tell our audience just really quickly where they can get the book best, not Amazon. Not and where Amazon. else to find your work too, because you do a lot of writing as well. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm managing editor of Counterpunch, so you can find me there. And we sell the book at, and through Counterpunch as well. And it was published by Haymarket, and Haymarket has uh, great sales all the time and free shipping and all of that. So go straight to the publisher, Haymarket Books. Great. Thank you so much. We'll put Josh's links to social media under the podcast. And thanks so much for listening, you guys. Let us know what you think and support Josh and peace out.